I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week, we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on our daily lives, so that together, you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. What really matters? It's a question I don't think we ask ourselves often enough. What are the things in our life that really matter? And what are the things that are just fluff, extra? Uh, I found myself recently reflecting on, uh, on our recent move and, and what that has entailed for us. Because we spent a good amount of time as a family uh, not having work. And uh, during that time, we had the opportunity every week to go to adoration as a family. And of course, now we've, we've moved across the country and there's work to be done and there's things to, to, to occupy our time. And that, that weekly adoration hasn't been a thing. We've gone to daily mass a couple of times, but even that's kind of hard to, to manage with as many children as we have and as early as we have to be there. And so I found myself last week in the confessional uh, really kind of surprised and shocked that something that had not been a problem for a long time was, was again troubling me and tempting me and, and, uh, and really kind of threw me for a loop. And as I contemplated what might be the cause of the return of this specific temptation, uh, why I would be facing this kind of anxiety again now that things in life were more stable, it all came back around. And I recognized that while things are good, it's not as easy, as intuitive, as, uh, as instinctual to pray. While things are good, we feel the, the, the pleasure of God on us and we don't turn our attention immediately uh, at every moment where we feel the need of it. We don't turn our attention to pray. We, as a family, we have not made that hour a week to go and sit before the Blessed Sacrament, to sit uh, with Jesus and just listen to his voice. And I recognized in that moment that, wow, here I am, I'm experiencing the blessings of God. We have a, a, a great place we fit in. It's wonderful. And because of that, we have skimped on our relationship with Jesus. We've taken uh, our, our habit and we have laid it aside for the things that are not important. So in, in the midst of doing this, I, I felt very strongly God asked me to do something and I did not want to do it. <laughs> I felt that, that, you know, now's a good time to, to get off social media, right? Uh, because I am, uh, I have a full-time job. I've got my kids that need my attention and there are many of them. And, uh, and part of the policy at the, the job that I am now at is that I, I can't really have connections with those people that I work with, uh, on Facebook. And that's primarily what I've done. I've used it as a communication tool. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, uh, since I can't friend all these new people that I've met, maybe now is a good time to step off social media. And it only takes about 30 seconds of that line of reasoning before their panic sets in. And I'm like, no, I, I can't do that. That's, that's a, a horrible idea because while I can't 
connect with all these folks around me right here. I still have all the people that I knew in other places, and that's my my line to connection. And the more that I sat with it, the more that I just really knew that it was time to lay it aside. And so this last week, uh, I I killed Facebook. Oh my goodness, it's just absolutely uh, horrific. But uh, I, already I'm seeing the positive fruit of that. Now, before you freak out, no. Outside the Walls still has a Facebook page. You can go to facebook.com slash step outside the walls. And I might even be a little bit more active there and keeping you up to date on what's going on here and posting some great links there because I'm not consumed in, uh, in the minutia of, uh, of personal Facebook. So my personal Facebook page is gone. I've still got my, my Twitter and my Instagram, which I, I, I rarely use. And so it's not as big of a time suck as Facebook has been because Facebook is really smart, right? They, one of your friends gives you a video and you watch it and it's good. And then there's like 500 like it just underneath waiting to play as soon as that's done. And it takes so much of your time away, took so much of mine away that something has to give. And if what's being replaced is my time in prayer or my time with my kids. I have to look and say, you know what? As much as I have liked it and appreciated it and connected with people through it, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that my children grow up in the faith and that they know that their dad is present. And if, uh, if my children look up and they want to talk to me and they see my face buried in a phone... They know what's important to me, right? And then that's going to, to rub off on them because now if they still, if they keep that mindset of I want to be like dad or I want to follow dad's example, now they've got their faces buried in a phone uh, almost as a rite of passage when they're allowed to have one. And so uh, it, it's, it's that nagging question, what's really the most important thing? What really is important and what's important is what's right in front of you. It's what's right in front of me. And for all of the, the wonders of technology of how it can connect people across vast distances, what's most important is that that's right in front of us, our families, our, our wives, our children. And so for me, uh, that has taken a, a very surprising turn uh, as I've gotten off Facebook. But what it's going to allow me to do and what I've already seen the fruit of it doing is to give me more face-to-face -face time with my children uh, for me to be able to, to pass the faith onto them in a tangible way, including regaining that hour every week before the Blessed Sacrament. I hope that you'll join me in that. Maybe you're not ready to get rid of Facebook quite yet, but find a way to have more face-to-face -face time with your family. Find a way to have face-to-face -face time with Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament we got a great show for you today as we talk about how to pass on moral theology and ethics to our children as we talk with Dr. Sarah Bartell. Join us over on social media. The Facebook page for the show is facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Lots of links there for you to take a look at. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam, and today we're talking with Dr. Sarah Bartell, an award-winning writer and speaker. She earned her doctorate in moral theology and ethics from the Catholic University of America, specializing in marriage, family, sexual ethics, and bioethics. Dr. Bartell, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Timothy. It's a pleasure to be here speaking with you. So I want to talk to you a little bit about your two areas of expertise, you being a mother of four, uh, of, of sexual ethics, of family, and, and children. So mm-hmm. how do we combine those together to where we can prepare our children to have, a, 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 specifically in this culture where everything is relative and, and uh, sexual ethics are based only on uh, consent and what I feel, how do we prepare our children to, to be sensitive to those people who are in the world and yet still uh, have a strong sense of, of truth and goodness and beauty that the church teaches? Basically, how do we prepare them to be saints? Yeah, that's such a great question. And this year, this academic year that's just winding down, I got to teach a course to the men who are preparing to be deacons for the Archdiocese of Seattle. And their course was an intro to morality course. So I was really, you know, back in this academic world of moral theology. And then I am a mom, a homeschooling mom. Some some of our kids go to traditional school, brick and mortar schools, and some are homeschooling, and our kids um, range in ages from four to 14. So I really love your question, because um, even though I kind of have had my mind in both worlds this academic year, especially, you know, the the academic moral theology, and then home teaching my own kids, and I haven't explicitly thought about (laughs) how to marry those, I guess you could say, there's just so much that happens organically as you talk with your kids, as you have these conversations, um, that you can do to form them so that when they get to the adult stage, they'll have those principles in place to be able to know how to make good decisions. Um, And it was really clear to me as I was teaching the men who are preparing to be deacons and their wives who accompany them, some of these fundamental principles in moral theology are really... um, not familiar, even to faithful practicing Catholics, even to men who are, you know, following the Lord so much that they're answering this call to the diaconate. Um, and what was really a key piece of that was just what you named, you know, that morality is not dependent on just feelings, um, that there are these principles that guide um, our assessment. And it's not just faith either, though faith is a huge part of it. You know, we're following the Lord's call. We're walking in his way, the way of the Lord Jesus. But there's also the light of reason. And that's what makes moral theology. That's what makes um, moral assessment rather than just moralizing. And you really need to, right? So it's a a difference between um, uh, when your kids are little, before they've made that leap into abstract thinking, you really can talk in very concrete terms. Like this is good. This is bad. This is God's law. This is not God's law. So that's a really great time for learning and memorizing the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, you know, just developing that disposition. But then later, um, somewhere between about ages 11 and 14, when your children make that leap into abstract thinking, you can talk about objective principles. And that's where my academic background (laughs) comes in handy. So something we've been doing with our kids is looking ahead and saying, okay, what what framework, what concretes can we do now that will translate into um, 
into subjectives later. So for instance, uh, the kids uh, get a, a, some, a glass and they throw it back and forth. This didn't actually happen. I'm trying to use an analogy. <laughs> and they, they throw it back and forth like a ball. And so uh, we say, what happens when we use things in a way they're not meant to be used? And they, mm. have, they have a learned phrase. I mean, we, we do the same phrase over and over, so it's very recognizable. And they know yeah. the response to that is... Um, it, they break when we use things in a way they're not meant to be used, they break or they break us. And so later the goal is I can say, okay, well what happens when we use our relationships or our sexuality in a way it's not meant to be used, it breaks or it breaks us. And so through that, we can talk about the soul or we can talk about uh, even, even disease or anything along those lines that come out of misusing sexuality but we do it in a way that as a, th- as a three-year-old, all they know is I'm not supposed to use something in a way it's not meant to be used. That's beautiful. Gives that real nice concrete image. Mm-hmm. I like that. Well, so you, you recently wrote a, a blog post where you, you kind of covered this a little bit uh, in relating to marriage. You talk about how we prepare our children uh, for marriage. And, you, you, and you, that might seem weird to look at your two-year-old and say, hmm, I've got to get you ready to get married. And yet the church talks about marriage preparation starting in the home at a very young age. So talk to us a little bit about that, because I think that that ties in as well to this idea of how we can uh, prepare our children to moral theology, as marriage is very much uh, tied up in the concept of moral theology. Absolutely. And I'm going to start with the story that I used to open my article because it was it really, um, really hit on some key points. And it was from my next door neighbor and friend, Carla, who was talking with her daughter, Ainsley. And uh, Ainsley is about seven or eight years old. Our daughters, we have all four, four girls. So to me, especially forming girls well to have high expectations for how they're going to be treated in their future romantic relationships and their future marriage. That is really important to me. So Carla put a post on Facebook in which uh, she and Ainsley are chatting and Ainsley says uh, to her mom, dad is really nice to you. And Carla says, yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. Husbands are supposed to take good care of their wives. And Ainsley says, some husbands don't. And Carla replies, don't marry that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Ainsley asks, how do you know what kind of guy he is? And Carla replies, well, spend a lot of time with him. Then have him spend time with your family and friends and see what they say about him and listen. And uh, Carla was so pleased with this. She finished her post saying, seeds planted, baby. And that's exactly, you know, Ainsley got to actually see the example in her home of her mom and dad being good to her and specifically of her dad treating her mom with respect, attention, care, Mm -hmm. and that's marriage prep right there in her symbolic consciousness. You know, Ainsley is absorbing these images of dad being kind, respectful, um, affectionate to mom, mom receiving that and reciprocating that to dad. I mean, when we talk about mutual self gift, which is the heart of the um, meaning of sacramental marriage, this is what she sees in her home. And then, she's able to have this explicit conversation about it where, you know, they're naming what's happening and, um, and Carla's teaching her daughter. Yeah. Look for this, look for someone who's going to treat you well, you know, avoid those guys who are not good. We're talking today with Dr. Sarah Bartell. So this, um, this is something that, 
there was there was intentionality behind it. The, the, this mother knew that uh, if I'm going to to make sure that my daughter uh, has the best chance of having a positive relationship, I've got to invest in it. And so when she asked the question, she could have just said something simple, but she made a way to enter into that conversation to begin telling her what to look for rather than just, hey, I've got these flutters and these butterflies and this emotion towards this person. Therefore, it's the right person. She said, well, you're going to have that with a lot of people. Here's the way to test rationally those emotional feelings that you're having. Mm-hmm. And the ways that she mentioned, you know, ha- get your family and friends involved, um, have them spend time with them as well. That was so wise. You know, I've seen studies that show that the marriages that succeed and are happiest are those in which um, spouses share values and in which your relatives from your family of origin like and approve of your spouse. So, you know, that it makes sense to, um, to have the, him spend time with them. You know, uh, this last week on on Catholic Twitter, as I like to call it, uh, J.D. Flynn, he's the uh, out at the archdiocese uh, at the diocese of Lincoln in Nebraska, and he had this this post about quit worrying about marrying the right person. He said, find someone who wants to be a saint and who's reasonably attractive, and marry them. <laughs> he, there he, you go. he said. Uh, he went on to say that we we put so much e- emphasis on the right one that then we somehow think that if I marry the right person, marriage won't be hard. And we set ourselves up for failure because marriage is always hard uh, in in Mm -hmm. some capacity. And so this idea of putting first, uh, as as Matthew 6 says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else is going to be added to you. This idea of even in uh, our choices about uh, our future marriage and our future vocation uh, to put seeking Christ and being a saint right there at the top of that list and letting everything else be informed and flourish out of that. Absolutely. And so if that's really the goal and is put into practice, a lot of the things that happen along the way between conception and engagement, which the church refers to as the period of remote preparation for marriage, all of that time from the time that you were conceived in the womb to the time you get engaged, that is remote preparation for marriage. That, um, that is a time when, in which just so much damage can occur, especially um, now with pornography being um, so uh, out there seeking our kids, seeking good kids in good Catholic homes. Um, you know, average age of first exposure now is sometime around fifth and sixth grade, mm-hmm. um, maybe a little younger. It keeps going lower each year, right? So that's forming kids for um their expectations for how men and women relate to each other, right? It's a distortion. So really being proactive. And I would say that is just the the biggest danger to marriage today is this pornography epidemic that we're in. So protecting your children for the moment when they encounter pornography, which is very likely to happen, even in good Catholic homes, for giving them a context and, um, you know, helping them understand when you see these images, this is what you do. You come talk to me. That's safe. We'll talk about this together. Um, you know, finding resources like the kids picture books, good pictures, bad pictures. Yeah. That parents can read your kids. You know, that's going to help boys know that what they see in those pornographic images, that is not how they are to treat real life women and to avoid those images, which poison their mind and souls. Right. right? 
Well, it, so I, I just want to highlight, and we're going to put a link to this on social media. That book, Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, is, I think, uh, an essential part of your library if you have children. So we're going to put that up on social media over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. We'll link straight to that Amazon so you can go and buy that and read it to your children post haste. Uh, it is yes. essential. Now, the, the other thing that um, that you mentioned in this, and you, you kind of, in this blog, you you blow past it. And I think it's probably one of the most essential things, and we'll probably have to deal with this a little bit in the next segment, but it is the idea of doing chores uh, as preparation uh-huh. for marriage. Because chores yes. s- says, I have a responsibility to the whole family, and, and my being in this family is not about me being happy or me being served. It's about me serving the common good. And there is no better, no better preparation for marriage than that. Uh, so don't just, don't just assume, oh, well, I don't want to let the kids do the chores because they might do it wrong or they might break it. You know what? It's worth a little broken dish now and again doing dishes to have a whole and a healthy marriage later in life. We sometimes think that it's only those huge memorable events that will help shape our children into who they're going to be. But it's really these everyday little things that prepare them for life ahead. We're talking today with Dr. Sarah Bartell about imparting to our children a sense of moral ethics. There's much more to come right after this. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Why, why don't you tell me something that you do in your household to help prepare your children for their adult life? We'll be right back with much more right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Today, we're diving into the deep questions of how to equip our children for their vocation, Uh, whether that be a vocation to religious life or a vocation for marriage. the, The goal is still the same, to make them into saints, that universal call to holiness. And that's challenged in our culture lately because of the... um, uh, the utilitarianist views we have of, of a person is only as good as what they can do for me uh, or from the, the views of uh, everything in life can be determined by how I feel about it. And so to, uh, to break down these questions and to figure out how to prepare our children, whether it be for marriage or just for sanctity, uh, we're talking today with Dr. Sarah Bartell, who has her doctorate in uh, in moral ethics, moral theology and ethics from Catholic University of America. Dr. Bartell, thank you again so much for joining us today. So great to be in conversation with you. We were talking just a little bit about marriage preparation and how it starts very, very early on. Uh, And we were doing this based on, because it connects to basically how to teach our children in an age appropriate way Uh, things that are related to moral theology, because, of course, marriage is related to moral theology very closely. Uh, You wanted to break that out a little. During the break, we were talking about what the church teaches about the three parts of marriage preparation. Um, A lot of people think that marriage preparation starts when they go talk to their priest, they've gotten engaged, and now they need to 
uh, to take the the pre-Cana course and jump through hoops so they can get married in the church so their great aunt Edna will be happy. Right. And, and yet we know that by the point in time that they that a person is engaged, the the likelihood that they're going to look objectively about whether or not they have made a wise choice uh, in spouse is just about nil. And so mm-hmm. marriage preparation, it can't be left to the purview of the church in the same way that uh, that religious education can't be left to the purview of the church. The church mm-hmm. says very explicitly that the parents, you parents, are the primary yeah. educators of your children in the faith. And that includes in preparing them for marriage. So talk to us a little bit about what the church says regarding uh, these different stages of marriage preparation. Yeah, well, the church really is counting on Christian families to to be the seedbed of vocations. And so that's vocations to religious life as well as marriage. So the church has a document from 1996 put out by the Pontifical Council for the Family. It's called Preparation for the Sacrament of Marriage. And in this document, these three stages of marriage preparation are outlined. So the remote stage of preparation includes infancy, childhood, and adolescence, as well as you know the early adult years. So that's a formation that takes place in the family, as well as at school and in formation, you know, like faith formation or whatnot, or scouts or whatever. Um, so that period is really important because you're learning your values that are going to guide you for life. You're absorbing the images around you, the experiences around you of how men and women relate to each other that you're going to bring with you into your marriage. Um, you're going to learn self-control and self-esteem, a knowledge of your own dignity, um, the proper use of your sexual inclinations, respect for persons of the other sex, as well as your Christian spiritual values um, and your catechesis. So then the proximate stage of marriage preparation, that's from engagement to probably a few weeks before the wedding. And that's what we call marriage prep officially in church circles, you know, like at the parish, we'll say, have you done your marriage prep program? That's proximate marriage prep. Maybe it's couple to couple mentoring or a retreat or an online class. I know some really excellent online marriage prep classes. Um, Right. So it's like an explicit catechesis to the couple about the sacrament matrimony. And then you go over some life skills, usually finances or communication or learning about your family of origin. And then the immediate marriage preparation really has more to do with the wedding Um, and that time right before the wedding, like planning the wedding and whatnot. So those are the three stages. So really the longest stage and the one that's, I think, going to have the biggest impact on the success of the marriage or not, that's the remote stage, which is a big responsibility for us parents. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about this because we have a responsibility to, to form our children as, as well as possible. But, you know, you, you hear these stories about children who, uh, who, dealt with a belittling parent or uh, oh. an abusive parent or, or and they always come back and say I didn't know it wasn't normal until I grew up and saw other families that weren't right. like this and, and so yeah. perhaps you're in a family that um, that you're a single parent and you have to do what you can from this point yeah. realizing mm-hmm. that that your children aren't going to see the way that your spouse interacts with you in a positive light uh, because that's not something that can be uh, done organically. 
So you have to now overcome that. Now, that, that doesn't mean that your children are now destined or doomed to, no. to live in that same situation. It means that now you have to be a little bit more explicit and overt in helping your children to, uh, to cr- critically analyze. What is it about marriage that I want? First of all, what's the goal and the end of marriage? I think that's probably a, f- a f- foundational question we often miss, uh, that the goal and the end of marriage is not about my own happiness, but it's the common good. And so we begin to form them based on what are they going to need to succeed that's not automatically, um, naturally given to them, and then to find ways uh, to pass that on to them through explicit conversation, through uh, through intentional opportunities where we make sure they have someone in their life where they can see uh, the the way that a person should be treated, so forth and so on. Absolutely. And that's such a good point because the, the nature of original sin means that all families are broken to a certain degree. You know, all of us have broken homes because we're broken by sin. And, and then in many families or households today, uh, there, there's not two married parents living together to give kids that that experience of growing up with a great example of marriage right there. Um, and this is just an area where, like you said, you can be more intentional. Um, maybe grandma and grandpa are still happily married and you can, you know, spend some time with them and, and then talk about, you know, just be intentional and talk about how they, you know, how they treat each other. Maybe there's an aunt and uncle or some friends or, um, you know, families in church that you can look to. It's just so important to be able to identify some real life lived examples of a successful marriage somewhere in your circle. And I want to break in here to those of you who are uh, happily married. Uh, you need to be on the lookout for people in your parish Aww. who are who are needing that. And maybe they don't know how to approach you. Maybe they don't know. Invite them over for, for lunch. You know what? It's hard enough being a single parent, doing all of the chores that need to be done. Take, give them a night off cooking, invite yeah. them over and, and provide for them uh, an opportunity to enter into relationship. Maybe it doesn't go past that one night, but you have planted a seed. You've built a bridge uh, because we have obligation not only to our family, but to the common good around us, to our parish family as well. And so you can help a parent, a single parent, uh, uh, even even a, a, another couple who's happily married. You can help them prepare their family, their children for marriage, simply by entering into relationship and showing the family uh, a reality outside of their own family structure. That is just such an important work of mercy to do, actually. You know, this is, hospitality is one of the key virtues that families are called to exercise. And the church in her recent documents talks again and again about the family's call to evangelization and to service together as a family. And that is such a great way to do it is to, you know, invite people into your home, into the heart of your home for meals and, and to, to share in your experience of a family life. And in today's society, we are living at a time in history where in our country, more households are headed by singles than by married people. Hmm. This is the first time in history. So there's a huge, huge need for companionship and belonging and, um, you know, encounter with family life out there. So I love that. And I also want to speak out for um, counseling. 
Mm-hmm. Because I think sometimes there's a lot of stigma attached with, you know, like, oh, if I have to seek counseling, that means there's something, you know, wrong with me and that's shameful. And I just think our culture is so toxic to marriage and to family life. I would say more people than not really can benefit from that deep healing that you can um, get with a professional. And, you know, I think it's sort of a form of um, of Pelagianism almost to think like, well, I can, I can do it on my own, right? If I just learn the right teachings and whatnot, then I can heal myself. No, no, no. Like God uses other people in our life to help us find deeper healing. And, um, I myself have benefited so much from counselors and just seeing others around me really, you know, thrive with that kind of care. So especially, you know, if, um, you or your kids are hurting from a less than ideal family of origin situation, yeah. do not hesitate to get that help. Now, we're talking ultimately about moral theology. You, you gave me a kind of a hint in the, in the break. You, you gave me a, you whet my appetite. You talked about the central question of moral theology, and that makes it sound like we can kind of wrap everything up in, in at least a, um, an essential question that, that we can meditate on for a long time and, and eventually get to everything else. What is, help us, get us to that place, what is that central question of moral theology? Well, um, I'll let you listeners see if you can uh, guess where this comes from. The question is this, teacher, what good must I do to gain eternal life? So whose words are those and who is that speaker speaking to? That's the rich young man that Jesus encounters. The rich young man approaches Jesus and asks him, teacher, what good must I do to gain eternal life? And John Paul II, in his document on moral theology, Veritatis Splendor, he identifies this as the central question of moral theology. So it's really key because here the um, the rich young man knows that doing good is connected with eternal life. And that's not just getting to heaven, that's having the fullness of life having abundant life, living the life you were meant to live, being the best version of yourself, um, you know, the fullness of life there, that it's connected with doing good. He wants to know what good. Mm-hmm. So Jesus points him right back to the Ten Commandments, right? He says, well, why do you ask me about the good? There's only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And this is all in Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. That's the whole story about the rich young man. So Jesus says, keep the commandments, right? And so that's something all of us parents can do is teach our kids the commandments, right. have them memorize them, have them understand what they mean, have them understand not just what the phrases are of the commandments, but what good each commandment is pointing to, right? Um, right? So it's not just all about thou shalt not, it's don't do this in order for a greater good to be pursued, right? Right. So... There's just so much there. I love this story. Um, I found an image on the internet of a contemporary rich young man in the, in the Middle East um, encountering Jesus, and he's got this sweet convertible car with a you know a, a lady, pretty lady in the car with like a shawl over her head and some hangers on, like you know a couple admirers, uh, his friends hanging out by the car, and and he's talking to Jesus. He's wearing this nice business suit. <laughs> and, And it really brings home like this rich young man, he had it all, right? He's like a a contemporary celebrity. You know, they've got it all. They're famous. Um, They have all the money they could want, Um, you know, attractive consorts, (laughs) right? But why was this rich young man encountering Jesus? Why does he seek him out? Because he knew there's something I don't have. There's something I lack and he's got it. 
We've been talking today with Dr. Sarah Bartell. Go over to drsarahbartell.com. That's Sarah with an H, Bartell with one L. drsarahbartell.com. She's got articles, uh, interviews, and this wonderful course we're going to be talking about just after this break, a course in moral theology for you to take it home. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. We had a great conversation with Dr. Sarah Bartel, and we've been talking about how we can help equip our children with, uh, with a, a beginning understanding and knowledge of moral theology and ethics. It's a tricky thing, but it's not as hard as some we sometimes make it out to be. Uh, it's those little things, those taking those opportunities to sit down with our children when they ask us a question and to turn the conversation o- over toward living a holy life. There's the story in the Gospels of the the man who walked up to Jesus and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, against these two, there is no law, which basically means that if we love God and love people uh, according to the way that God loves them, to will the good of another person, as Thomas Aquinas put it. If we love God and love our neighbor, everything else is naturally going to flow out of that. We don't have to keep up with these complex rules and laws because if we love, if you and I truly love, and if we teach our children to truly love as God loves, to will the good of another person, then they're going to to act in a moral way out of love for that person, out of recognizing the dignity of that person, they're going to act in a moral way. And so it's not necessarily all that difficult of of trying to put them through classes and whatnot. It's about helping them to see the dignity of the human person and and the worship that belongs to God. Uh, And it seems like a big task, but we take it one day at a time and one task at a time. Now, if you've got older kids and you feel like it's a little too late to start with that, well, Dr. Sarah Bartel has a course that she has taught this last year on basically an intro to uh, to moral theology and ethics. It's available on her website, drsarahbartel.com. That's Sarah with an H, Bartel with one L. Uh, and there, uh, under the courses tab of that blog, there's this intro course, and she's going to give you, my listener, Uh, a free intro session, one of these sessions for you to take a look at it, see what you think, and see if this is something that might benefit you uh, as you try to prepare to teach your children, or maybe you've got older children who can kind of grapple with some of these deeper things. Uh, Maybe you want to get it for them. And uh, so all you have to do is go on to Twitter and send a message to at Dr. Sarah Bartell, Sarah with an H, Bartell with one L, uh, and say, I'm interested in your course hashtag OTW show, and she will give you that first session for free for you to take a look at. Now, there's more to my conversation with Dr. Sarah Bartels that's available to all those who support the show through Patreon. Uh, To get access to that and to join those who keep this show on the air, just go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, 
Click the support the show Patreon link and for as little as $5 a month, you get access to all the extra segments that we produce for our supporters. While you're there, you can look at all of our archives at OutsideTheWalls.com, share this episode with your friends, uh, and maybe give them some good ideas about how to broach this topic with their children. Now, without further ado, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our reading from Scripture and from church history. It just so happened that our reading for today, uh, this Saturday, is that Matthew 6 passage. I didn't know it when I brought it up earlier. I wasn't paying attention. But here it is right in front of us. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, this is right in the middle uh, of the, the, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said to his disciples, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap. They gather nothing into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more important than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single moment to your lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothes? Learn from the way the wildflowers grow. They do not work or spin. But I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was clothed like one of them. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which grows today and is thrown into an oven tomorrow, will he not much more provide for you, O you of little faith? So do not worry and say, what, will, what are we to eat? Or what are we to drink? Or what are we to wear? All these things the pagans seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you besides. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Sufficient for a day is its own evil. That reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 6, from the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. These are the words of Christ himself saying to you and to me, the things that we worry about are not worth worrying about. We need to turn our eyes, first and foremost, to the things of God, to pursue holiness, to teach it to our children, and let God handle the rest. Our reading from church history today, we're not going to go back too far. We're going to go to the document of John Paul II, St. John Paul II, Familiaris Consortio. We're going to look at chapter, uh, or paragraph rather, 37. Even amid the difficulties of the work of education, difficulties which are often greater today, parents must trustingly and courageously train their children in the essential values of human life. Children must grow up with a correct attitude of freedom with a regard to material goods by adopting a simple and austere lifestyle and being fully convinced that man is more precious for what he is than for what he has. In a society shaken and split by tensions and conflicts caused by the violent clashes of various kinds of individualism and selfishness, children must be enriched not only with a sense of true justice, which alone leads to respect for the personal dignity of each individual, but also, and more powerfully, by a sense of true love, understood as a sincere solicitude and disinterested service 
with regard to others, especially the poorest and those in most need. The family is the first and fundamental school of social living. As a community of love, it finds in self-giving the law that guides it and makes it grow. The self-giving that inspires the love of husband and wife for each other is the model and norm for the self-giving that must be practiced in the relationships between brothers and sisters and the different generations living together in the family. And the communion and sharing that are a part of everyday life in the home at times of joy and at times of difficulty are the most concrete and effective pedagogy for the active, responsible, and fruitful inclusion of the children in the wider horizon of society. Education in love as self-giving is also the indispensable premise for parents called to give their children a clear and delicate sex education. Faced with a culture that largely reduces human sexuality to the level of something commonplace, since it interprets and lives it in a reductive and impoverished way by linking it solely with the body and with selfish pleasure, the educational service of parents must aim firmly at a training in the area of sex that is truly and fully personal. For sexuality is an enrichment of the whole person, body, emotions, and soul. And it manifests its inmost meaning in leading the person to the gift of self in love. In view of these close links between sexual dimension of a person and his or her ethical values, education must bring the children to a knowledge of and respect for the moral norms as the necessary and highly valuable guarantee for responsible personal growth in human sexuality. For this reason, the church is firmly opposed to an often widespread form of imparting sex information disassociated from moral principles. That would merely be an introduction to the experience of pleasure and stimulus leading to the loss of serenity while still in the years of innocence by opening the way to vice. That reading comes from paragraph 37 in Familiaris Consortio by St. Pope John Paul II. Now, this is a daunting topic because we, the, the, the stereotype is out there that whenever we start to think about the talk, you and I get a little squeamish and we don't know quite what to say and we get nervous. Well, first and foremost, we teach our children what it means to truly love, a love not based on emotion, but a love that is the result of an act of the will right? I choose to love my wife every day. It's not something that I always feel. It's certainly not something that she always feels, but we act in loving ways to one another, willing the good of the other person, taking care of their needs, thinking about their needs before we even think of our needs. And we do that. Uh, and when we can, when we can train our children to do that, to make a choice to love and not merely to follow the emotions, then we are 90% of the way there. And we know that love is not an emotion because Christ commanded us to love and he wouldn't command us to do something that was beyond our capacity. And emotions are what they are. They're something we experience. They are not something that we drum up. And so we know because Christ commanded us to love and that he himself is love, that it's not just this uh, emotional um, happiness of, of euphoria all the time. And so if we can teach our children to love, and to love to will the good of another person, most of the job is done. 
There's lots of books out there, some Theology of the Body books. There's lots of stuff at Pauline uh, Press, pauline.org. There's all kinds of resources available for the mechanics, for teaching uh, the moral theology. But if we start by teaching our children to love, we've done most of the work. Today's show is brought to you by Carrie Carlson and Brandy Carey and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.